Hello, it's Pete. Um, excuse me for uh, just interrupting at the start of episode 44 of Stages, but I, I wanted to tell you that uh, last Saturday evening at the Seymour Centre in Sydney, the Australian Podcast Awards were held, and I'm thrilled to share the news that you were with you that Stages was recognised as the best new podcaster for 2019. Now, at my age, to be considered the best new anything is an absolute delight. So to receive this acknowledgement for a project that I'm so passionate about is a terrific reward. The evening was sensational, a gathering of podcasters from all over Australia celebrating a media form that is truly on the rise. The breadth of content explored in the many podcasts is astounding. Statistics on the night reported 410 entries for the 25 categories being recognised in the awards. Uh, For the Best New Podcast category, 66 entries were considered. So to be a finalist of six very different and accomplished programs was a huge acknowledgement, let alone the honour of winning. I appreciate that you listen and subscribe to Stages, and I want to encourage you to explore more of the content available in other programs. You'll find an extensive list of great Australian podcasts on the Australian Podcast Awards website. Can I also take this time to thank the producers of the awards, Dave and Anna, for investing such passion, energy and time into making the night possible. To the many judges who indulged in all of the entries and to my fellow podcasters, uh, to my hosting platform, Wooshka, and to Aston Microphones, Audiocraft and Possible for sponsoring the prizes I received. Thanks to you too, my listener, and to the many wonderful guests who have accepted my invitation to converse and share their stories on stages. So bear with me, here we go. Thank you to Tony Lamond, Michael Norman, Brian Castles-Onion, Trevor Ashley, Geraldine Turner, Grace Barnes, Paul Saliba, Graham Browning, Donna Lee, Kevin Jackson, Jane Beckett, Andrew McFarlane, Stuart Green, Kate Gall, Dennis Follington, Tom Campbell, that's my phone going off, ignore that, Peter Fitzpatrick, Maureen Elkner, Lyle Jones, Frank Van Stratton, Fred Farger, Maggie Blinko, Rod Dunbar, Tony Sheldon, Martin McCullum, Lucy Birmingham, Caroline O'Connor, Jill Sykes, Luke Woodham, Bruce Pollack, Jonathan Biggins, John Nicholas Saunders, Maureen Howard, John Robertson, Penny Larkins, Todd Jacobson, Andy Dexterity, Tony Gapin, Craig Revel Horwood. Oh, the calls are coming in, ladies and gentlemen. Craig Revel Horwood, Jackie Dark, Alex Bellage, Jan Russ, Chloe Dallimore, Fiona Choi. I need to remember to turn the volume off when I'm recording. Uh, Barry Dickens, Shane Cahoon, Ron Crager, Cameron Mitchell, Nick Hardcastle, Amy Maiden, John Goad, Brian, uh, Rodney Delaney, Carla Moore, Peter Casey, Reg Livermore, Phil Scott, and today's guest, Elizabeth Butcher. Uh, there's so many more stories to tell, and I look forward to bringing all of those to you over the coming seasons. Best new podcaster. Woohoo! And now, here's episode 44 of Stages. This week's episode, Elizabeth Butcher. Elizabeth Butcher is a humble hero of the performing arts in Australia. An administrator of considerable brilliance, she has steered many of our arts organisations to prominence, accolade, survival, and celebration, nationally and on the world stage. She was the dynamic general manager of the National Institute of Dramatic Art for nearly 40 years, and together with its director, John Clark, steered the school to become the flagship training ground for arts practitioners. It was Elizabeth who found the site of the Sydney Theatre Company, an abandoned wharf in Walsh Bay, who upon discovery knew it would be the perfect home for a theatre company. 
She was present at the beginnings of the Sydney Theatre Company and managed the move of the old Tote Theatre Company to the newly built Sydney Opera House for its finale season of plays. She has served on countless boards, including the Australia Council, the Seymour Centre, Playing Australia and the University of Technology Arts Management Course Advisory Committee. She was chairman of the Sydney Opera House Trust from 1989 to 1995, a role that fills her with great pride. She has held positions on the New South Wales Government Cultural Grants Advisory Council and the Council of the University of New South Wales. It is a most remarkable resume and her achievements in arts management are extensive. It is her role at NIDA as nurturer, manager and business executive that has endeared her to many and ensured that young artists receive the best training and launch pad possible. In 1984, she was appointed a member of the Order of Australia for services to the performing arts. It was my great privilege to celebrate Elizabeth Butcher and her immense contribution to the cultural life of Australia in this episode of Stages. Well, Elizabeth, thank you for giving me your time this morning to talk on Stages. Can I start with this question? So, uh, can you give me three adjectives which you think best describe you? Oh, heavens, that is... That's putting you on the spot, that's isn't it? That's putting me exactly we'll, we'll dive straight in. Uh, like, are, you, are you an ambitious person? Not necessarily um, ambitious. I'm a workaholic. I'm a kind person. Uh, and I'm a pretty good listener to people. I don't know if that sort of answers your question. No, that's perfect. Hmm. Workaholic. Hmm. You obviously enjoy the work, though. Oh, I loved it. I think the greatest thing that ever happened to me was the job that I got at NIDA when it was this tiny little school um, up on uh, High Street in Kensington in Tin Sheds and uh, a grandstand that had belonged to the... used to be a race course on that site and it was the jockey's uh, grandstand building and the totalisator, um, and it was a wonderful job. I learned every single day You're, something new. We're blessed, aren't we, if we have a, a job that doesn't seem like a job, that, no. that it is a hobby, that yeah. it's going to stimulate us yes. in some, some sort of way. You're one of the country's most significant arts administrators, I would say. Everybody recognises that, mm. which is an extraordinary achievement, with uh, roles at the Australia Council, the Sydney Opera House, um, the Old Tote, and of course NIDA, which we've just touched on, and we'll touch mm. on more of that through the interview. Is there any event that you're most proudest of? I think, again, it goes back to NIDA. I think uh, raising the money and persuading the government to provide the resources necessary to build that new building for the school at 215 Anzac Parade. That was a very significant achievement, I think, that I did. And one other, I, uh, I found that wharf, wharf number four, uh, because I was asked to by the Premier to find something for the old tote when it went into liquidation and there was no development down there at that time. And he said, Premier Rand came to look at that wharf with me after I'd found it, and he said the, the new theatre company could have it. Where were you born? I was born in Gundagai, in, in uh, New South Wales. And were your family an artistic family? Not at all. My father was an accountant in the town, 
and uh, uh, no, not at all. And I had never really thought anything very much about going into theatre or doing anything like that. And uh, so uh, I lived in Gundagai and I was sent to Skeek Starlinghurst as a boarder uh, in the early 50s because Gundagai didn't have a high school and my mother believed very strongly in education for girls. So you went to boarding school at about age 11 or 12? Oh, no. Uh, yes, 11 yep. or 12. Yes, right. That, that's right. And in those years, it was only five years to get the high school. No, it was called the leaving, leaving. certificate. Yes, yes. And uh, so I got that. And then with other friends, stupidly, I decided to do pharmacy. And so off I went to Sydney University to do pharmacy where I hadn't done chemistry at Skeggs. And, of course, in the second year I failed, and I thought, let me out of here. And that's what I did, and I did a typing course, um, went overseas for a little while, came home, and then not very long after it, I saw this little ad in the paper that says, Bursa Wanted, University of New South Wales, or something like that, and I applied. Because I thought, oh, bursas are like an accountant. My dad's an accountant. Not that I know anything about it. And <laughs> <laughs> so no accounting qualifications. No, 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 no qualifications whatsoever. whatsoever. What was it like going to boarding school as an eleven-year-old, leaving leaving your family in the country and travelling to the city? Um, I also enjoyed that tremendously. It was a fantastic life. There weren't many of us. There were six, only sixty boarders all up, and. Uh, you're only allowed out uh, for two weekends and one Saturday per term. So that meant that you were at the school for a lot of the time. And uh, we just used to have good fun. You know, the school would organise a little event or take us out or do something on the other time. But I really, really enjoyed my my time at the school. Was there much exposure to the arts at that point? Drama, N- art, No, music? not a great deal, uh, n- no. But the school taught you resilience and uh, to be able to stand on your own two feet and to abs- probably to have an ambition to do better for yourself and, uh, uh, and to d- make a contribution to something. And so the school taught me a lot and I... In my early days at night, I always reflected back on my school days and how I pulled on strengths that I got from my school to do that job at NIDA. Were you a good student? Yes, I was. I, I wasn't the brightest. I was in, I think in my year they had three classes, A, B and C, and I think I was B. But uh, I did pass the leaving certificate and I did get enough credits, whatever, to go to university to do the pharmacy. So that's what I did. What sort of child were you back in Gundagai? How did you amuse yourself? Did you have siblings? Yes, I I was the eldest and I have a brother and a sister. Do you know what? I can't really remember how we entertained ourselves. Really, we lived in the town. Uh, My father's clients were mostly graziers. And so I had lots of friends and you'd go to play tennis at someone who lived you know 10 miles out of town this way or you you know you'd uh, just fairly ordinary things I used to walk to school and um yeah I can't really think how I amused myself well I I think I grew up in a a small country town also Mm -hmm. and it was about um well you really had to amuse yourself 
So it was exploring the bush? Were you close mm-hmm. to the bush? Yes, although I did live in the town, but a lot of my friends lived in the bush. Right. And my parents were friends with a lot of people. They'd been there. Um, well, my father was born in Gundagai, so he had been in, in the town for a long time. Right. Yeah. I fondly remember Guy Fawkes Night. I don't know how we survived. I but don't. building bonfires and I did. We yeah. did it in the paddock across the road, and, <laughs> and we built bonfires. You know, and they used to, my mother used to hope that the the sparks from the fire didn't land in the box of the fireworks that you had there. It was always a fairly dangerous experience. It was extremely dangerous. <laughs> I mean, you'd light a cracker yeah, in your fingers, right. and you'd that's sort right. of. I, I'm glad I just released that cracker before yeah. it exploded. And those little banger things that you threw. Oh yeah, yes, we did that. We yeah. did that in the paddock across. From our house in Gundagai. And what about pets? Yes, we had a dog, uh, a fox terrier named Mac for most of the time. I think Mac was called after General McCarthy in the war, but there you go. We had a fox terrier too. They're they're mad. Mm. We used to chase the hose (laughs) we had it. Oh, yes. And we we used to cool by being under the... Hose, I mean, under the sprinkler. That's right, that we'd run under the sprinkler. sprinkler. Yes, yeah, yes, yeah, so yeah. we did all that. And things. then, of course, the drought and all those water restrictions. So the children today don't know what good fun and, is. No, that's exactly right. <laughs> that's exactly right. Who were some of the adults in your childhood who were strong influences or inspirational? Now, these could be people you knew or people on a world stage. Oh, that's a hard one as well. Teachers, neighbours, relatives. Yeah, well, both my parents were very influential on me. Uh, my, uh, And they were wonderful parents. And uh, I had an aunt in Sydney when I came to Skeggs who was very influential uh, to me as well. She, uh, she was the one that used to take me out when I had free weekends. And she showed me Sydney really and she lived at Gladesville and uh, that had a lot of bush around that we used to go and explore and be careful we didn't get ticks and uh, um, but then in the school there was um, I enjoyed um, the English teacher and the art teacher you you know interesting classes I I don't think that I can say that anyone... There were a whole host of influences. A whole, yeah. whole host Who of influences. open your mind to... Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And that's what Skeggs did. It opened my mind from the country as to what could be. We, we hope that our schooling has a huge impact on it. Mine certainly, mm. certainly did. Uh, but yours, obviously, more so because you're still involved with the school. Yes, and I... I enjoy it, and I think it's a fantastic school. Um, I look at, and and I am very proud that uh, my nephew, who works in New York, I won't say who he works for, he works in New York, but he has two little girls, and he is coming back next year, and they're both going to go to Skeggs. Terrific. And so I'm really, really thrilled about that, and uh, yeah, so that's what they're going to do. So you land a role as a bursar. I land a role as a bursar. At the University of... New South Wales. New South Wales. Mm-hmm. How was that? 
Were you found out quickly that you didn't know much about accounting? or? <laughs> well, the thing is, there were only three members of the staff. Right. And we only had 26 students and, you know, it was all that kind of thing. And I suppose, yeah, and so I just managed everything. I think it was just a sort of a bit of an innate ability. I enjoyed it and I learned very quickly as to what I had to do, how I... You know, John would say to me, we're going to have an audition tour. Well, you know, not many people audition way back in those kinds of days. So this is John Clark? This is John Clark. When did you first meet John Clark? I met him. I didn't meet John Clark till I went for the interview. Right. Mm. And uh, which was in 1969. And um, NIDA hadn't been going very long. I think the first intake of students... Well, the first graduating here was 1960, and I went in 69. Right. So, so that the in. kind of students that were, and I soon learned everyone who'd been a graduate. I mean, I knew who Robin Nevin was, and Robin Nevin once came and shared an, a, a flat with me when she came from Tasmania back to Sydney. But, do you know, Carmen Duncan and John Gregg, I knew them all, and... Uh, I, they knew who I was as well. You must must have built an extraordinary bond with a lot of the students. You would have seen thousands of students come yeah. through the place uh, over the years. Drama school can be a very challenging time for mm. a young person. Uh, did you have some sort of maternal role to those students? Yes, I think I think that is true. I never interfered with the arts. The, the art. I mean, I didn't know anything about it. I didn't. So I never interfered, but I could help them in other ways. And uh, if they had some terrible woe, or if they wanted some financial assistance, anything they wanted, or if they were unhappy or sad or whatever, I was one they'd come to. They'd come into my office. When did the old tote come about? Because you were general manager of the old tote. Was that the same time? Um, I... How a lot of this occurred was I had had an argument with the chairman of NIDA at that time and there was a job going which was within the New South Wales uh, cultural grants part uh, organisation, the organisation anyway that gave out grants in New South Wales. And after I got that job, I then I patched it up with my NIDA chairman and I really didn't want to go. And so I got seconded. Neville Rand seconded me instead. And so I did go to work in that division of cultural activities for a period of time. And I used to go to, back to NIDA after work to do my, after my government job, back to NIDA to carry on my work. So you were, you were serving two, two, serving jobs, two masters? Two masters. <laughs> but one of the main things that I had to do was the old tote went into liquidation and and we should say the old tote was the forerunner of the stc it was it, it was a, 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 a it was a theater a, it was a theater company that was established by nida in in the 60 in about 1963 i think and it it was to give an opportunity really for graduates to, to practice their art. to practice their art yep. and members of the nida staff to have to be able to direct 
some and yeah, whatever. Yeah, yes, that's right. Shows, yeah. Yes, and so um, and also, I, I suppose the city uh, craved some sort of opportunity like that to as an audience. That's absolutely right. Yeah. Yes, and so it was a very and it was a tin shed. It was a tin shed that's still there. I think it's uh, used for theatre uh, uh, for the stu drama students. Um, I didn't have much to do with the old toad because when John Clark got the job as the director of NIDA in that same year, Robin Lovejoy got the job as director of the old toad. And shortly after I got to NIDA, the old toad moved away from NIDA and they went down to Anzac Parade to what it was known as the original Parade Theatre. It's not there now. That's where Nida's new building is. But uh, that's so the actual old, old toad moved down there, and they continued to present their plays down there. And the tin shed uh, became Nida's theatre. And uh, so I really didn't have much to do with um, the old toad per se. I mean, I used to go to the theatre and things, but I uh, I had nothing to do with it formally. And it wasn't until I was seconded to the the government that it went into liquidation, which I think was about 1979. And what I was asked to do was to organise and present the last five plays that people had bought on subscription uh, from uh, The Old Toad, because by this time and I think it was probably in 1973, the old tote became the resident theatre company at the Opera House. So they had those two theatres working. And when it went into liquidation, they had five plays to go, I think, three at the Opera House and two out at the parade. So the Opera House was, uh, I'm trying to remember, that was very new. That was, yes, it, it was opened, opened in 73. Right. Yes, yes, right. And... So the old tote was it was the company that had the residency of the drama theatre, and um, so it was my job uh, to manage that to, to manage that to get those plays on, and as the directors were already appointed and the actors were already selected, I didn't have to do a great, but I, I had to um, uh, just organise everyone to get there and to be there and to know what was happening because there was a great deal of fuss because it had actually gone in. So I worked with uh, the liquidator uh, for a good period of time as well as going back to NIDA to do my jobs late in the afternoon. Was, was a lot of that learning on the job? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I and I think that every time I learned something, it just stayed there and so I just moved on. So you kept and, building your skills. Yes. And, uh... and, and then... then uh, when it was finally all over, the Premier said to me, we are not going to buy the building. Um, the old toad had a building out along O'Ridden Street in Alexandria where they had rehearsal rooms, they had the costumes and they made the sets. And the, so that was their building that they had bought. And I, I think probably the purchasing by the old toad of that building overextended themselves. And that was one of the reasons. And the Premier said, I'm not buying that building. I don't want that building. I want you to find a government building that won't cost us anything, that this new company that we will form um, can operate from. So I started looking. 
And so there were, there, were, there were plans afoot to create a new theatre company? Yes, because... A uh, state theatre company? A state, yes, although he wouldn't call it a state theatre company, but the leading company in Sydney, and his main aim was to have a company that performed at the Opera House. So was this Neville Rand's idea to create a state theatre company? Oh, or yes. Who whispered in his ear? Or? Uh, well, uh, uh, all he, because I was working, there was a man called Jerry Gleeson, who was the secretary of the department, who was a fantastic... If anyone, uh, you could, uh, I would have liked to have been like Jerry. He was the most fantastic uh, uh, administrator, confidant and whatever, to, uh, to Ran. And all they wanted was a company that was stable but would operate... Uh, for the Opera House. They didn't want that to be empty or to be casually occupied by anyone. They wanted... In the drama theatre, the so theater. they wanted to yeah. house that. Because there was already the opera company and there was a ballet company. You know, there were all those. They wanted a major uh, theatre company. So when did he decide that perhaps we want... Or I, I, I guess the, the Wharf wasn't the uh, predicted home for that no. company. They just wanted a government building. They just want a government building. Right. So um, I started this looking by being given, because I was at that time seconded to the government, I started looking at, and I looked at bus depots and uh, I would ring up various organisations and say, um, I'm looking for property for the government. Do you have anything to show me? And I'd go and see things. So you weren't working through agents or anything like that? No, you no. Were just doing just the ring around. around. <laughs> and there was someone who worked also called David Hill who went on to be the, the ABC chair. Yeah, right. And David Hill one day, because he was working in, in for the Premier at the time, and he said, did you go to the Maritime Services Board? And I said, no. And then I rang up a little man. And he took me and he showed me that wharf. He had a huge chatelaine of keys on his belt and he fiddled and diddled and got in. And I walked into that building and all there was there were pigeons and nothing else and no pillars. The great thing that I had learned, you cannot have a pillar in the middle of a rehearsal room. It's simply not done. So I was always looking for pillarless space. And so... Yes, and so he showed me that, and I thought, this is it. I walked the length, looked out the water. So I went to back to, and said to the Premier, oh, I sent it to Gleeson, and I found one I think would be fine. And about a week later, um, uh, the Premier um, went down to see it, and he turned to me and he said, you can have it. And that was that. That's brilliant. I mean, it's the most ideal location. Oh, I know. Uh, just at the end of that wharf, under mm. the harbour, mm. views of the mm. Lunar Park, the Harbour Bridge, mm. the Opera House. Mm. It was mm. perfection. Because the only development was, in that time, uh, the first wharf had suddenly, we just started to be commercially uh, right under the bridge and it just started commercially. I think they had a cafe and it was not really done up. So there was really nothing down on Hickson Road, nothing. And now it's become... Quite, quite Sydney's um, arts precinct, yeah, yes, um, with yeah. the ATYP and yeah. Bangar and Sydney yeah. dance. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, I didn't, uh, yeah, I didn't know how they're going to do it, and and so you know we worked together. I, uh, um, then Ran asked me whether we, uh, how would they put on plays for the following year for the this new company, 
which was we called, we said. And there's always an argument, who's, who said the name? Was it me? Was it John? Was it someone else? But we decided, or in my view, it should be called Sydney, simply because if it was meant for Sydney, because if it was any other name, if it was a national, or maybe that it would have to tour, and I didn't know where they were going to get the money from or how they... So let us just call it a Sydney Theatre Company and operating in the Opera House at that time. Because it was... No, the MTC had been going, hadn't it? That, it that, had. Out of yes, the union yes, rep. Yes. So yeah. that was the only other state theatre company that, in the country. That's right. Yeah. And the Premier didn't want it to be a state theatre company as such. It was to be funded by the Australia Council. And uh, so an interim board was appointed and I was asked to present... Uh, I think five or six plays at the Opera House. I asked John to be the artistic director of that and he agreed and so he oversaw the selection of the six plays that were to go on at the Opera House and we tried to think who would we ask, how would we ask them and so we thought to be fair maybe we should ask the artistic directors of the established small theatre companies in Sydney. So that was how we got. So at, just about at that time, Jim Sharman had had the Paris Theatre Company. Yes, yes, they yes. for a while. And um, he and Rex Cramphorn. So both of those were graduates of NIDA. So we asked both of them to uh, select a play in this new six-play season that we're going to do. And uh, the ensemble was asked, and uh, they selected an American. I think his name was Bobby Lewis to do their play. Um, who else was there? So I've got three. Uh, anyway, I have to think what the other plays were. I I should have come better no, prepared. Right. I, ju- I just had a thought. I'm I'm a great believer in happy accidents. Mm. And if we just rewind a little bit, unless you'd had that Barney with the chairman at mm. night at the time. None of this would have happened. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's absolutely and utterly correct. And um, so the season uh, was... Uh, oh, and Nida did one. Jo- I mean, John did one. John directed a play. Rex Cramphorn did The Lady of the Camellias with Kate Fitzpatrick. Jim did the Patrick White play with Robin Nevin. Uh, uh, Mrs. Yes. Cheery Soul. Cheery Soul. And the ensemble did a play, Long Day's Journey Into Night, I think that's what they did. And uh, who was the next one? Anyway, I'll think about that in a minute. Was it Richard? When did Richard come along? Richard Wearit? No. um, After that year, they advertised for an artistic director of of the New Sydney Theatre Company. And Richard was the selected first director of the Sydney Theatre Company. That is when he came into being. Now, John Bell directed a play, didn't he? Anyway, I have to think about that. I All these that. Uh, Australian luminaries of the <laughs> theatre who were <laughs> yeah. there at the, yeah. at the ground floor. Yes, and so I, I had nothing to do with the selection of the artistic director for the new theatre company. Uh, there was a small three-man board that had been appointed by the government. Tony Llewellyn-Jones was one of those uh, 
directors and they selected Richard and I worked for Richard for a little while because the um, the wharf wasn't ready to house the theatre company and uh, Vivian Fraser had been selected he'd already done that Nimrod oh it would have been Nimrod Nimrod was the other yes, company yes the other company yeah, yeah, of course yeah, yeah. Yes, well, yes. I'm saying John Bell thinking we're Nimrod and that's really and nice. <laughs> um and Vivian Frazen, who'd done Nimrod Street uh, as the architect, he was invited to uh, design, design the, 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 yes, the, wharf the wharf precinct. Yeah. Yes, and but it wasn't ready. And uh, the Richard worked, I think, for a while out of the Elizabethan Theatre Company's offices here in South Darling Street. Anyway, so when Richard was appointed, he offered me the job to stay on but you know somehow or other I just miss Nida. Um, Nida was a vibrant refreshing place and every year there were new students there were you've new got that people. incredible energy being yes. invested yes. in the place every yes. year injected and uh, I loved the new students and I realized that in the presentation of plays as an administrator or a general manager, you just sat in your office. You didn't get the opportunities that I had to be part of something that I had when I was at NIDA. So I decided that I would rather go back full-time to NIDA. I left the government service and I just went back to NIDA. NIDA had a fantastic technique that they developed over the years of, of selecting students. And I wasn't part of that selection. Right. Uh, because I believe that you needed to delineate between the art and the business. And where and so my business crossed over into the art once I was selected. Because then I helped them. How are they going to get to Sydney? Where would they find a flat? Where would they live? How much did they need? Were they going to have to have a scholar? That was my, that, then that became my role. Rather than me sitting in a, a rehearsal room and I never marked someone and said he's got talent, but you could always tell. Yeah. You could always tell. So both you and John Clark were quite a formidable partnership. We you were. steered that ship. Yes, we were for forty years. Nearly, for, yes. yes, which yeah. is extraordinary. Yeah. So, so you you're the business side, and yes. John's the artistic side. Yes, that's right. But uh, but you see, then I also got along all. all, all. See, Kevin was a Kevin, Kevin Jackson, Jackson yeah. was a student in I think. Uh, the first full year I had at NIDA, which was 1970. And so then I became a sort of a lifelong friend of his after that. And uh, there were many others that did the same, that were that students. That still have relationships And that with, I still have yeah. a relationship, lots of them today. And I see them when I go out and, you know. Um, so I guess you don't really miss being at NIDA now because no, you have I all don't. those relationships. It was because I became tired too. I mean, I didn't resign and retire till I was 70. And so it was a long career because what we haven't said is after I went back to NIDA, then all the fun began because I was appointed chairman to the Opera House. I was appointed and I was appointed chairman of the Theatre Board of the Australia Council. I was a member of the Australia Council. So how did, how did all of that come about? Were you invited? People yeah, started they, to recognise you as somebody well, who would be a great they asset? Did. I, I did. I don't know. But it was the government who pointed me to the Opera House again, um, uh, going, 
back to Neville Rand. I, I, I was appointed to the Opera House. No, I, uh, yes, and uh, I think who mm, appointed me, I don't know. Um, but but they were obviously somebody wise. <laughs> <laughs> but then uh, you know it was the federal government. I was good at um, getting money from the government for the school. I mean, I think I had a sense. Uh, I did all that. See, that was the business side. I did all the fundraising that we ever did. I did all the government liaisons. But over many years, you're building those relationships also. Yes, that's right. People are trusting you. Yes, and it sort of just grew and grew. And so, I mean, I was a member of the Council of the University of New South Wales for a period of years. I was uh, a member of the Seymour Centre Board. You know, there were just so many extra things that I took on so did you ever have a night at home (laughs) that's why living in Paddington was terrific I could come from Nida here in sort of 20 minutes and then quickly change and go to the city Uh, and so yes and I and I just enjoyed it and it was just but when I retired I I retired and uh, I just kept two different sorts of boards or or three. One of the other boards that I'm on now, other than Skeg's Darling House, which I absolutely love, is that I'm on the Naysta board. Oh, brilliant. And I love being there and, assist, and using my NIDA knowledge, if I can, to assist in anything that I know. Although they sometimes look at me and think, oh, that's a bit old-fashioned. <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, the way in which I uh, accrued funds to build things or to get things and yeah so can we talk about a play which is probably one of the seminal works of the australian theatre canon and that's don's party Mm. it premiered to great success at the pram factory in melbourne Mm. tell me about the sydney production and how that came about well that's again it's another (laughs) funny story you see, I never read a play because I thought if I read plays, <laughs> I can do everything. And I thought that's not I'll friend. leave that to John. <laughs> so John went overseas and, of course, it was... I don't know. I, he must have flown overseas. There must have been planes at the time. But he went overseas and I remember getting a letter. It was in a letter that he said to me, I want a play... I want some plays to be considered for our little theatre at Jane Street up behind NIDA. NIDA had that theatre in Jane Street. I did, we didn't even talk about Jane Street. That's uh... Oh, that was our great theatre company up there. Um, I th- for NIDA graduates or no, it, when, we, when we used it No, uh, we used it for student productions and we also used it for professional season every year. Right. Jane Street was a very, very special... Uh, theatre, and if you went to view John, he can tell you all about Jane Street. But NIDA owned this theatre, which we did student plays, and once every year we did new Australian work. And as a matter of fact, when John first interviewed me for the job, he was directing a play at Jane Street at the time, and it was very difficult for me actually to see him very much, and so I'm running the school while he's doing a professional production for Jane Street. However, in in about 1972, uh, uh, he was overseas. He wrote me a letter and he said, have you started looking for, for some plays for Jane Street? Well, he said, ring Catherine Brisbane and ask her for some plays. So I did. And Catherine Brisbane delivered me a pile about a foot high of plays. So I, so I don't. I never read plays. Never. I have never to this day read a play. 
So I looked at the titles, and about the third play I came across, it was called Dawn's Party. And I turned over the first... Oh, I thought, well, that sounded better than some of the others that I was looking at. And I turned over the first few pages, and John Clark had a way with words. He used to shock me. He used <laughs> rude words. And I was a little girl who'd not long ago come from Skeggs and a very nice family in the country. And I think John absolutely enjoyed shocking me. Shocking me. And uh, these had some very rude words on the first page. I'm not going to repeat them on this, what they were. And I thought, that's a play for John. And I put it in my drawer and I gave the rest of the pile to Alex Hay. And when John came back, I said, here you are, I found your play. I didn't know anything about the pram factory that had been on down there or anything like that. So you just read a couple of pages yes. full of dirty words. words. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, that's for John. So, And then it was a great success here. I mean, Again, a happy accident. Happy accident. <laughs> and, you, I, and I remember one night, because then, so in the evening, this is why I was busy, I used to be the front of house. Jane Street night, it didn't matter where it was, I was the front of house manager because we had no money. Right. I mean, Nida had absolutely zero money, really. I mean, when I started there, I think with our 26 students, we got something like $43,000. Wow. And that came through the Elizabethan Theatre Trust at that time. It was before the Australia Council. And uh, after the Australian council came into being we transferred over to be funded by them but then again good fortune after a while I used to argue that it was unfair that a school should be funded at the expense of artists who we were training we were in competition with our product, yes. and that was not right. Yes, no. And so we were the first school out to be taken on by Canberra as one of the national schools. And then shortly after, there are eight of them today, but that was one of the very, very, very best things that I could do. There was someone in, the, in that department in Canberra called Cathy Santa Maria, of the Santa Maria fame, and she was marvellous. And... She helped me and we got ourselves established to be funded by the government away from the Australia Council and really neither then funding-wise sort of took off. And what were some of the day-to-day -day challenges of running a place like NIDA? Um, <clears throat> to keep it independent. After we became successful... The university wanted us. Well, we see WAPA go the way that's lost its autonomy. That's mm -hmm. part of Edith Cowan University yeah. now in Perth. Yes. And that I could see that that would be no good because we worked hours that no university school or department worked. We did things. Our students did things. They wanted to come in and rehearse on Saturday and have the building open. And things at the university. They had rules and regulations for everything because they're such a big organisation. They have to have these rules. I tried my very best not to have rules and regulations like that because they're all artists and they needed to be free, really. And I, I think that was one of my biggest achievements for, in all those years, talk, uh, keeping away from an amalgamation. I loved the university. I mean, there was no question, and I loved being on the campus. But what I didn't want 
was to be under their jurisdiction in any way because they used to complain about how much money NIDA got per student as opposed on one professor told me once you get more money than I get for my medical students you see so I can imagine being in the university the government giving us this money and I'm saying no why are they getting all that <laughs> and so I just kept away from ever ever being amalgamated with the university and I also did that about the land the land where the new NIDA theatre is on Anzac Parade that has a lease for 100 years from the Commonwealth, uh, uh, and it is a Commonwealth building, uh, 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 but it's not the university's building, it is NIDA's building. So the land has been leased by the Commonwealth from the University of New South Wales, and then the Commonwealth put that building on. And Richard Alston was a, was a minister who, t who told me that we'd got that money for that new building. Brilliant. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. You were one of the very first training schools in the country there's an abundance of them now do you think there there can be too many training schools in a, a country like ours a small country like ours look so many young people have this extraordinary ambition to be an actor and I think if they're handled right that you might never make it but as in the profession as such and you always try and encourage them to think about something else and to do something else. Uh, but when they take it for real and they have very big expenses to pay and they have hex loans and have all sorts of things, sometimes I wonder how fair it is because you know that the profession hasn't kept up with them to be a, in order to enable them to do work. And so if they want to be a teacher, they have to go and do extra qualifications to be a teacher. Sometimes that becomes very hard, and uh, I do worry about too many things and the quality of the training. But I know it's a cost, and if you don't get into NIDA and you don't get into Whopper or the VCA, it gets hard. And no matter how talented you are, yeah. there's no guarantee of success. There is no guarantee of success, no. What was it like running an iconic venue like the Sydney Opera House? As chairman? Yes. <laughs> well, my claim to fame in my time there, I got the car park built. Brilliant. <laughs> the, the, the corkscrew. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Like yes. car park show. But look, it, it was also a, another very big job because, of course, you were very close to the government. It, it was owned by the government. So uh, there was never any question of what you had to do. And... Um, but it was a very young time. I mean, it was very young, but it was a great symbol for this. It was the most privileged thing, I think, that ever happened to me was to be appointed the chair. I think I was the fourth, the third or the, f the no, probably the fourth chairman in a, uh, since its inception. And I, I was very proud of that. Uh, it, it was wonderful and I worked extremely hard. And, but I was also very lucky insofar as that the general manager of the Opera House was a theatre person. It was Lloyd Martin. He came from a family of theatre people and he'd run theatres before. So we, like John and I, had a, had a very close relationship professionally at NIDA. I also had the same sort of relationship at the Opera House and we got along well and there was, we never, ever had any problems at all. 
you're surfing on a lot of boards, I imagine, where you're the only woman, perhaps? Were there many women surfing on boards and in the roles that you not, were no, 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 not a great number. No, not Was that a, difficult dealing with all those men? No, I never found it difficult dealing with all those men because usually for the job at hand, I knew more than them. What is difficult is if you're the only theatrical person on a board, whether they're men or women. That is their lack of understanding. And so that was why I did get along quite well because people who, the general managers or the artistic directors of the companies that uh, performed uh, at the, in, in the opera house knew that I was a theatrical person. And so it's a bit, you know, they could talk to me about their, the difficulties that they may be having and I could understand the problems that they were under, uh, that they were having because of my background, really. But today, on other boards, Skeg's boards is different because a, a, num a great number of them are parents, so they have an understanding. But on other boards that I've been, um, no one understands very much. A lot of lawyers are often appointed to boards. I don't know why law I, I sit on, I'm not going to say which one, but I do sit on a board currently where John sits on it and Kevin sits on it, Kevin Jackson and John Clark sit on it and me and all the rest are lawyers. That's a bit hard. Yes. So, um, yes. I, I guess people assume that the legal brain has a certain knowledge, but, but on you, paper perhaps. But Yes, but you see on the Naester board, we have one lawyer. All the others are either from the Indigenous community who talk about the art. They talk about the training. They talk about where the students are going. I mean, they're very proud at the school, at Naser at the minute. I think 12 out of the 18 um, professional dancers for Bangara are graduates of that school. Right. And so, you know... So board members have to know the yeah. product that they are managing. Yes, but yeah. often they don't. Right. Yeah. But Naser board do. Skeg's board do. But um, others don't. Uh, it helps their CV. <laughs> <laughs> have the arts been supported by federal and state governments as much as they should have been, do you think? I mean, the current climate's a concern, perhaps. The current climate's a concern. And, and the other thing that I never did, I never, NIDA was never funded by the state. I wanted to be federal. I wanted to be that national. I wanted NIDA to be the national school, so I never applied to the state government in New South Wales, which could make it a, a New South Wales school. And that was a part of the problem that the VCA had. They had state money as well as federal money. And that I didn't ever have... NIDA was never funded by the state, only by the feds. And uh, I, I think it's very difficult for these schools. But then again, do departments these days follow what's happening in the schools as well as they could. Um, I just don't know. I just don't know. Yes, who's evaluating the courses? Who's evaluating? Keeping, monitoring them, keeping an eye, an eye on them. Yeah. Seeing where their graduates go. I remember I got uh, a Foxtel here in, when it was soon in Australia, whenever it was, and I watched television when I could so that if I ever met a minister of the Commonwealth, I could have this wonderful talk about what Nida was doing and what our latest graduate was in, where they were going, whether what they were doing maybe in New York or Los Angeles or in London. 
or, or uh, just to keep them going like that. But I did. Uh, that was the sort of homework I did. I wanted to know where every graduate was, and I know where a lot of them are today as well. That's brilliant. <laughs> yeah. Why are the arts vital to a society? Well, it's your cultural heritage. Um, you know, there were other arguments that I used to have. Because we trained at NIDA students to be able to work in television, I used to think that if we turn out an actor uh, that is fantastic on television, how many people's lives does that touch? They mightn't be the greatest stage actor in the world by the time of graduation, and they might not get any great work on the stage. Most of them always want to be on the stage, I have to say. But if they go, you know, we discussed a little while ago about Penny Cook. If you remember what country practice did for this country, as a tele- and so people at home and the work, all around, no matter where you lived, most people in this country have televisions. Yes. And therefore, I think that cultural influence of Australian television that used to be, or still is, fantastic, the Australian series, then our our movie industry, uh, I think we could do better for that, with that, more so than the television industry. Uh, But I think that is something that the arts do. uh, for a community, for, for the community, for Australia. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't matter where you live; you can get some telly, and you can watch something. I was fascinated to hear that you didn't read the plays. I don't. No. Do you have a favourite artistic form that you? The, the opera, the ballet, the theatre. Um, do you know what I have to say? I like the ballet because I don't have to worry if they can't speak proper, <laughs> <laughs> and I can sit back and watch listen to the music so I do enjoy dance um, and I and when I tried to analyze it once I thought yes that's right I don't have to worry about the voice so uh, yes. so I guess you, you saw many many student productions everyone yeah because I was the front of house manager for so long right right so <laughs> yes. you're aware of what was working and what, what wasn't oh working yes, yes 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 uh, so do you consider yourself retired now or I mean, you're obviously serving on a couple of boards, but is there an exciting project that might lure you back? No. No? You're quite happy to... and I would like to travel a bit more. I mean, I I have friends and uh, I'm going away in May for a month and and I do that every year. And I love living in Paddington. I love seeing the people I see. And uh, and as I said to you earlier, I'm going to Darwin to the uh, the Telstra Award this year and Peter Cook was one of NIDA's great successes. Who's working in the States now, isn't he? Yes, he yeah. works. He's head of drama at Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh. And he runs a fantastic school, dare I say, you know. At Carnegie Mellon, yeah. Yes, and uh, I thought he might come back here, but he didn't. He was a great designer. He he taught, he taught. And... It was because of the way the school was managed. I mean, at a dress rehearsal at NIDA, you would have every head of the department there, no matter who was directing the play. And notes were taken, and uh, the designer took one, the tech person took one, the craftsperson took one. Uh, notes all the way through, through to get those plays on and just to make them the best they could. Yes, it's curious, isn't it, to see those those great practitioners, whether they be actors or designers or directors or mm-hmm. whatever, they seem to have a period of great 
mm. accolade and then careers often wane. Yes. Uh, is theatre clubby? Is I it, it, it clicky? Cl- yes, I think it's clicky and I think it's clubby because I think of lots of great directors who never sort of... Uh, I mean, Gail, to take as one, is not any work in the profession today. She was here visiting me yesterday. and But she directed Salome, the current production uh, of Salome. She did the current production of La Boheme. She did Carmen on the Harbour. And a wonderful international career too. Oh, she yeah. worked uh, for Cameron McIntosh. I don't know, for the National and Shakespeare. She did have a wonderful international career. Um, yeah. But I guess there are, there are new people coming into the industry every year in artistic directorship roles, mm. uh, a lot of graduates coming out which are mm. wanting to have a go. There's just so much competition, isn't there? So much competition. But on the other hand, people pay a lot of money to see it. So in my view, it has to be the best. That's what it should be. I mean, give people opportunities, but not in the really big... Let them work up into those bigger roles because um, that's what I... And Peter Cook, he knows how to do that in America. And one of the things that happened for NIDA in my time, we uh, had an exchange program with the theatre school in Delhi. And John used to go over and direct there and they would send someone back to Australia who may direct or who may teach or may just observe. I went several times to help them with their administration and back. But Peter, since he's been in America at Carnegie Mellon, he now still gets that invitation and he goes to Delhi every year. So this time, this year, I'm going to go to Delhi and meet up with him. While he does his teaching, I'm going to be there around. Uh, Fantastic. So you're still maintaining those professional and personal relationships. Yes, 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 all the way through. Yeah. Elizabeth, thank you so much for this conversation today on it's Stages. It's my pleasure. You, you are one of our great artistic heroes <laughs> mm. in, in, in this country. Indeed, a mutual friend said to me, if we were in the UK, you'd be Dame Elizabeth Butcher by now. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> but, Not at but, all. But... Mm-hmm. Uh, you are very humble and, um, you know... Um, but it was a wonderful career. It was a yeah. wonderful life. And, th- and I'm 80 now, and so I feel I can sit back and enjoy it and relax a bit. Don't you think? Enjoy the fruits of your labour, <laughs> as we all do. <laughs> yes, yes. Thank you very yes. much. My pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to Season 2 of The Stages Podcast. All episodes from this season and last are now available through iTunes, Wooshka and Spotify. Hear inspiring conversations with a range of folk who engage audiences, actors, directors, designers, playwrights, producers and drag queens. Everyone has a fascinating story and you'll hear them here on Stages. I'm Peter Ayers and thanks for listening. It's always a pleasure to have you with us. See you next time on Stages. Stages.